Lord, bless you and give you his grace and equip you with all that you need for life and godliness. If you're joining us via live stream, we're glad to have you with us as well, though I will tell you that you are missing out as a means of grace and fellowshipping with God's people on Sunday mornings and also missing a, a good lunch that's coming afterwards. Uh, I do have a couple of announcements, but I will just limit them to what is going on today because there is a lot going on uh, today. And as many of you know, uh, later on, after the service, we'll have our, having our congregational meeting uh, to review our finances thus far and to uh, potentially approve the budget for next year as well. And so that'll be uh, later on after the service. And uh, this is just be a, a time where we take care of some administrative financial things in the life of the church, but also intending for it to be just a, a, a time uh, to deepen our, our fellowship and our unity with one another, our love for the gospel and our love for each other as well, uh, as we seek to encourage uh, each other during that time. Now, uh, prior to, uh, before that meeting, uh, we will have our Thanksgiving uh, fellowship lunch, and that'll be right after the service. I'm sure that you can probably smell the food from here, and I'm sure you saw it on the way in. So as, try as hard as you can to uh, uh, fix your eyes on Christ and not be distracted by the good food that's downstairs. Uh, but the food is coming. And that'll be after the service, so after the conclusion of our service, we'll go downstairs, uh, grab our food, have some good time of fellowship, good food, and then at some point, either Jay or I will uh, will let you, uh, excuse me, will let everyone know that we will be proceeding to our meeting, and so we'll take like a a five to ten minute intermission. That'll be a time uh, for people to either use the restroom, uh, grab a dessert, bring it back to the table. Uh, If you you have kids and you are comfortable uh, with it, we are going to have a separate room uh, for them downstairs in the fellowship hall where we'll uh, put on a movie for them. There'll be a couple of people uh, keeping an eye on the kids. And the reason we did it this way is so that uh, we're not asking anybody to miss the meeting entirely. But in this way, uh, those who are watching the kids can still sort of actively participate in the meeting while also keeping an eye on the kids as well. And so uh, you'll let, we'll let you know when we'll take that intermission during our lunch and where uh, the kids will be um, and so uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was, I don't remember. <clears throat> I thought I wrote it down, but I, I could have sworn there was something else. But regardless, anyways, uh, it should be a good, a good day, a good day just to worship the Lord, a good day just to enjoy each other's company, to fellowship. If I don't uh, see you uh, before Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving. I pray and hope that it'll be a good time for you, good food. Uh, with uh, good people that you enjoy being with, and that the Lord might uh, uh, give you His grace, and there'll be a time that you might remember uh, to be thankful for what God has done uh, for you and throughout your life, and just to offer up a praise of thanksgiving unto the Lord. And that's what we intend to do today as well. That's why we come together on Sunday mornings to praise God for what He has done. That's why we come together to fellowship, uh, to not only enjoy each other's company, but as a way that we can express our gratitude unto the Lord for how good He is to His people. And so uh, if you are here for the first time, and, uh, and even if you are here and you are not a believer, follower of Jesus Christ, we're glad that you're here. And you are also welcome to join us for the lunch afterwards as well. No need to bring anything, no need to give anything. Just come and enjoy some good food uh, and fellowship with us. So we're glad to have you with us. And before we transition to that time, uh, let us cast our eyes upon the Lord Jesus. 
let us rejoice and celebrate for who he is, what he has done, and let us lift up our voices as we proclaim how good he is to his people. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand with that call to worship. Let's, uh, let's honor our Lord.
I know, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. God, Father, we, we come before you this morning as a body, as a congregation, Lord, as a church, singing songs of praise of how deep your love is for us. And, that, and yes, we may, we may have heard the gospel many times. We may have read the gospel many times. But I pray, Father, that as we should, let us preach the gospel to ourselves daily, Father understanding our salvation and your sovereign grace over our lives. This morning, Father, I pray that you may lead us in your word now, that we may be encouraged, edified, Father. May all the glory be to you, Lord. May you be magnified in this time. In, this, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. At this time, we'll be dismissing uh, our children to the classrooms as well. Right. I'm going to read to us from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 36, and then we will spend some time in prayer. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And let's go to the Lord and let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, who are we to even attempt to mine the deep mysteries of who you are? We are but finite creatures, finite in our understanding and comprehension, finite in our ability to know all that there is to know about you. 
Even the Apostle Paul, probably the most learned apostle, probably the church's greatest theologian and teacher of God's church, even he admitted his inability to ascend the hill of the knowledge of his blessed Savior. And yet here we are, Lord, trying to understand you, to know you, to draw near to you. For the scriptures never give us any reason or any excuse to not draw near to you and know who you are. Instead, your scripture compels us and woos us and commands us to know the Lord. So we come to you this morning desiring to draw near, to pull back the curtain just a little, and to be able to behold your face in Jesus Christ. Lord, even though the scriptures never forbid us from knowing you because of our finiteness, God, we still admit that we oftentimes fail to deepen our knowledge of who you are because of our own selfishness. We are at times so consumed with our own selves, and we might even make gods out of our own selves when there is a God who is greater than us, greater than the world, a God who has saved us in Christ Jesus and has revealed himself in his Son and continues to reveal himself through the inspired word. Lord, we come confessing that oftentimes that we don't give our, our minds to meditating deeply on your word, and we oftentimes give ourselves, give our minds to thinking more about the things of the world or our own desires and our own wants. Lord, we're reminded of Psalm 1. It tells us that the one who is blessed is the one who meditates on the word of the Lord day and night, and that this one is the one who prospers. Lord, we pray and ask that you would forgive us, Lord, for not pressing deeper into the knowledge of who you are, that we don't oftentimes draw near to you as much as we should in order to know who you are, in order to be more transformed into the likeness of Christ. But we're thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when we peek behind the curtain, what we see is not a God who is displeased and angry with us, but as a loving Father, He is compassionate and merciful towards us because of what Christ has done for His people on the cross. Lord, even though we're not able to understand all things, and there are some doors that are locked to us, help us to not give our efforts to barging down those doors, attempting to unlock, reveal mysteries that you have safeguarded. Instead, help us to leave those doors as they are and to go to those doors that, you, that have remained unlocked. For in them there are treasures for us to mine now and until the day we die. The things, the secret things belong to you, but the things that are revealed to us in your word belong to us and our children. Help us to devote our lives to those things so that we might know you and so that our lives may be continually transformed day and day. 
as we grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray that what we know may translate over to our hearts, directing our lives. Father, we pray this morning for Dennis and Gina, George, as they as they plan to move soon, we pray that you would prepare the way for, for them, that you would protect them and guide them. We pray, Father, that you would continue to look after their family, provide for all that they need. Lord, we pray for their precious children. We pray, God, that you would bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray that they might know the Lord and that you might equip and help their parents, to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We pray for the Gentinis, God. We pray that you would help them to recover in their illness. Lord, provide those opportunities and give them the boldness to declare the gospel, Lord, with those around them. Lord, we pray for the salvation of their son, that he would come to know the Lord. We pray for their grandkids. We pray that they also might know the Lord Jesus. We pray for their ex-daughter-in-law. We pray that she also might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. Father, we pray for those who are in a season of suffering. We pray for those who are finding it challenging in this season of their lives to, to walk in the footsteps of Christ and to live the Christian life. Lord, would you encourage them this morning? For those who are weak and frail, God, as a, as a physician of souls, we pray that you would transfuse the lifeblood of Christ into them, that they might be rejuvenated and reinvigorated to press on and live to the glory of God. Father, we turn our hearts to the world Lord, we're encouraged by the book of Acts, where it tells us that as many as were appointed to be saved believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, you have written, and therefore it will be fulfilled, that peoples from every tribe and nation and tongue will one day worship the living God. This means that there are so many upon many out there in the world that you have appointed to salvation in Jesus Christ. And what is needed more is more laborers to go into the fields. Lord, we pray that you would send brave and zealous disciples to preach the good news of salvation to those who have yet to believe and to those who have yet to hear the name of Jesus Christ. We pray that doors that were once closed may now be opened. We pray that the storehouse of heaven might be open to provide for this mission. We pray that challenges might be overcome by the Spirit of God. We pray, Lord, that many more young people would feel a beckoning to leave behind their comforts, to lay down their lives, to preach God's gospel to a world that is perishing. And Lord, we narrow our focus and we continue to pray to the God of our salvation that you might graciously provide a new awakening here in New England that there might be a tsunami of people seeking entrance into the kingdom of heaven with a ferocity that has never been seen or heard of before. Sovereign Lord, we pray. We pray for our president, 
We pray because your word commands us to. And we do so because as Christians, we want to live peaceful and quiet lives. And your scriptures never forbid us from desiring that kind of life. Lord, we pray for wisdom. We pray for his insight. We pray for his understanding. God, we pray that you would move him and compel him to promote those things that are good, that are honoring and pleasing to you, and that he would rebuke those things that are bad and evil, that he would govern in such a way that it would be honorable to you and would be for the good of all. And Lord, we pray for his salvation. We pray that you might remove his heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that beats the same rhythm as a heart of Christ. And lastly, God our Father, we pray for those here this morning who are fathers with children in the home. Lord, help us as fathers to not exasperate our children. Help us to not be so impatient with them. Help us instead to be slow to anger. Help us to raise them in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Help us to love them and to to cherish them as the precious gifts that they are because they are made in your image and you have graciously given them to us. Lord, would you help us to shepherd their souls, to shepherd their hearts, to pray for them fervently and to constantly compel them to come to Christ and be saved. Lord, we trust you for all of these things, and we look forward to all that you are going to do. And to you also, we pray this morning the prayer that Jesus himself taught us to pray in the scriptures. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you would, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, be reading verses 3 to 14. It's a Mount Everest of a passage. Not only because of its length, but because of its content, because of what it teaches. Many theologians with PhDs think and write about a passage like this and a particular topic that is the subject of the sermon this morning, but it is a topic that is not just for the intellectual, the most academic, but it's certainly for everyday Christians like you and I. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, 
to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that as finite human beings who have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ, help us by Your Spirit to understand, to know, and to apply what your word has to say to us this morning. Lord, please guide us by your spirit. Bless us with your grace. And encourage and comfort those who need it this morning by your word. Apply through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Acts, in one of Paul's missionary journeys, one in which he was traveling with Silas, they reach the city of Philippi, and there they come across a slave, a slave girl who is possessed by an evil spirit, and the, her owners use her as a means of profit because she tells the fortunes of others. Now, the slave girl seeing Paul and Silas, continues to proclaim these are the servants of the Most High God over and over again until Paul is, tells us, is annoyed and casts out this demon out of this slave girl. And at that moment, these owners lose their means of income and they have Paul and Silas imprisoned. And in that prison, Paul and Silas begin to pray to God and sing hymns, which is heard by everybody else who's in the prison. And immediately it tells us, in the book of Acts, that the foundations of the earth were, were shaken and the, the, the prison doors were opened and the jailer drew out his sword intending to take his life because if he lost a single one of those, those imprisoned, he'd pay with it with his own life. But Paul stops him from doing that. And the jailer proceeds to ask him, how or what must I do to be saved? And then he hears the gospel and is saved. Now, a question I have for us to consider this morning is, did Paul and Silas intend to go to prison? As they entered the city of Philippi, was it their desire? Was it their intention to head into prison? My aim this morning is to help us to believe and to understand and to know 
and more importantly, to embrace the doctrine of God's decree and to embrace it as the most sweet and delightful reality. So first, God's decree defended. So let us define what it is, what is God's decree and what it is not. It is not his sovereignty, it is different. God's sovereignty is his right and authority to rule and control all the things that he has created. Like a, role, like a king or a ruling monarch has absolute governance and authority over the place, over the people that he is ruling over. God's decree is not his providence. His providence is the purpose, purposeful providing and governing and sustaining of his creation. Like a, an entrepreneur who's built his business from the ground up, he's not going to leave his business to run on itself because otherwise it'll end in disaster, but he continues to maintain it, to oversee it, to watch it, to make sure that it is functioning as it should. Now, certainly God's decree encompasses his sovereignty and his providence. And I will continue to define what God's decree is throughout the sermon. But here is a definition of God's decree. God's decree is God's eternal plan whereby he foreordains all things that come to pass for his own glory. It is his planning of all things and his assuring that all that he has planned actually comes to pass. So this isn't his foreseeing what's going to happen in the future and then planning accordingly. It's not like a a maze where he kind of sees everything that's going to happen and then his job is to sort of weave his way through the maze because he has this end in sight and so he has to avoid the pitfalls, the traps, and the dead ends and sort of all, and then considering all the things that will happen in the future, he finds a way to navigate them and avoiding those things to get to his end. That's not what it is. That's not what his decree is. Neither is it his foreseeing what will happen and then constantly adjusting his plans in time in order to make sure that what he has planned will come to pass. Instead, it is his determining or marking out beforehand all things. So think of it as sort of this woven canvas where each thread is intricately woven to create this massive, beautiful canvas that only God can see. Only He has the final picture. It isn't His looking ahead and seeing what's going to happen from large events in human history to down to the particular choices that each person makes. It's not that He sees those things ahead of time. And then he plans accordingly how he's going to weave his intricate canvas in the midst of all these seemingly uncontrollable events that happen in our lives and in human history. If that was the case, then he has, that means that he would, does not have absolute control over the canvas and what happens and what's going to happen nor is it his constantly changing his plans because otherwise he would get started on the canvas, something happens, something unforeseeable, something that could not be controlled, and he has to start the canvas all over again, taking into account the thing that has just happened that he could not account for, 
and then starting the campus all over again until finally it is exactly what he had pictured in his mind. Instead, God has envisioned the canvas. He has planned out exactly how he's going to weave that canvas. He's in control of all things that happen, including human decision, including evil and sin and wickedness in the world, and that he somehow weaves it all together to create this wonderful canvas that he has envisioned. That it is all a part of his plan. He doesn't sort of dismiss the unexpected, anything that might be any thread that is, might be considered inconsistent to what his canvas should be. He doesn't just throw out a trash. Instead, he actually takes those threads and somehow weaves them into his canvas. And they ultimately will be exactly what he had envisioned. The challenge for us is that we don't know the full picture. Because we can't see it, because it hasn't been given to us. We don't understand. We don't. Understand, we don't. Can't see how. How can God take this decision that I may regret, or this decision that I've regretted, or how can God take this affliction, or how can God take this suffering? How is this consistent with what He wants to do? How can He take this and weave it into His canvas? And to encourage and compel us to trust in him and in his decree, he has given us his holy word. Because God's decree is vividly displayed throughout the scriptures. Some evidences of God's decree, Isaiah 46.10 tells us that God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That certainly includes his sovereignty and his providence working together to bring about his ultimate plan or his decree. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things, without exception, he works according to the counsel of his will. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? The answer is yes. He has spoken, and he will fulfill whatever he intends to fulfill. Now, the Scriptures, and many other places, certainly teaches us of God's decree, but the Scriptures do more than just teach us of God's decree, but they actually, the Scriptures... Put it on display. The scriptures actually want us to see the decree of God working itself out. He showcases it. The drama of God's decree comes alive throughout the passages of scripture. The holy word dramatizes for us God's foreordination. What we see in the Bible is that the world is God's theater. And that men are actors in God's theater. And the point of the theater, or a point of the theater, major point of the theater, is to display God's powerful decree. We see this time and time again throughout the scriptures. 
from Abraham being chosen by God amongst many others. And God declaring that through this one man, I will create a powerful and mighty nation. And we see that come to fruition throughout the scriptures. We see this as that very nation is enslaved in Egypt. And there's a promise that they will be delivered and brought to a land where they can prosper. And we see this come about the providence and sovereignty and the decree of God. We see the decree of God and the story of Job. We see the decree of God and the preservation of God's people through the story of Esther. We see the decree of God from the very beginning when God made this promise that he will send one who will crush the head of the serpent. And we see this unfold time and time again throughout the scriptures until we finally get to the New Testament and we see the one who has come to fulfill that promise in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's come to save his people from the sins and destroy the works of the devil. All of those things and many others are intended to display to us God's powerful decree. What we learn from the scriptures is that God's decree encompasses all things without exception, but his decree has a special eye towards his covenant people. It covers all things broadly, but it narrows its focus on a particular people. From Abraham, the patriarchs, nation of Israel, and now through Jesus Christ, those who have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. Then that means that your life as a believer is actually showcasing the powerful decree of God. We cannot always understand it, and we don't see how everything will work out. But your life is showcasing God's powerful decree. And naturally, we might think of things that seem to contradict the reality of God's decree. You might consider the reality of free will, right? How does free will work with God's decree? If God plans all things according to the counsel of his will, even, a, even my own decisions, he plans them and can weave them into his intricate canvas. How does free will work out? How do we reconcile those two things? But we know from the scriptures that God does not override human free will. There's this interesting story in 1 Samuel 23 where David and his men saved the people of Calah. And then King Saul is after his life and he comes to the Lord and he asks whether or not the citizens of Calah, the people that he just rescued, whether or not they will hand him over to King Saul. And the Lord reveals that the people of Caleb will turn you over to Saul. And at the, in the moment, there's a decision to be made. Will he actually remain and be given over to the hands of Saul, or will he move on? And, of course, he moves on because he does not want to be handed over to, the, to King Saul. And he makes this decision freely based on information that God had graciously provided. The very gospel itself teaches us that there is certainly free will that we exercise 
when it comes to believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, Jesus would not say in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's an expectation that one can decide and make the choice to repent, to turn away from the sins and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God does not do that for anybody. But the decision is left to the individual. It does not override human free will so that man has no ability to choose and no responsibility to choose what is right. Let's pretend for a moment that you just bought yourself a well-built car. And you have a guarantee, you've been guaranteed by the dealer that this car will last you for, the, for your entire life, whether you live 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, this car will certainly outlast you. And you can even put this car through a nuclear blast and you can turn it on and it'll still run like new. But there are certain things that you have to do in order to make that guarantee a reality, such as putting gas in the tank regularly, such as swapping out the tires when they get worn out, such as bringing it for an oil change. Right? There are certain things that you have to do, a conscious decision that you, that you must make in order to take care of the vehicle, in order to make that guarantee a reality. So in the same way, God uses means such as our decisions to bring about his ultimate ends. In the gospel, Jesus says that all those who have been given to him by God, none will be able to snatch them out of his hands. So in that, in that very passage where Jesus says this in the gospel of John, Jesus is saying that for the believer, there is this eternal security in the hands of Christ. And yet at the same time, the scriptures also give us means for us to employ to make sure that we stay in the hands of Christ, such as his word, reading, studying, meditating on the word of God, prayer, fellowshipping with God's saints, repenting of sins. These are all means that God uses and gives to us in order to do our part in making the eternal security a reality for our own lives. We might also consider the problem of evil. Well, if God is, ordains all things that come to pass, and God is powerful, and God is providential, and God is sovereign, and he certainly could have prevented the first sin from ever entering into the world, well, does that not then make God responsible for evil? And the answer is that no, it does not. There's a difference between causing and being the author of evil and permitting evil. If your son or if your child came, if you went to your child because they had done something wrong and you must reprimand your child and bring consequences that fit with the wrongdoing and your child says, well, well, I, I, I didn't mean to. I mean, my friend pressured me into doing this. Well, that might be true. That doesn't excuse your child from doing the wrong thing because he or she had the ability to do what is right and the responsibility to do what is right and yet chose not to. Now, illustration breaks down 
because God is not one to pressure or to compel anyone to sin or to do evil. For James 1.13 tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So when it comes to God's decree, there's really a twofold definition to God's decree. God's decree is his planning all things according to the counsel of his will for his own glory. When it comes to this question of evil in the world and even the sufferings and afflictions that we face and have to endure in our lives, this second part of the definition is especially helpful. God's decree is God planning all things according to the counsel of his will for the good of his people. And we see this more clearly in the next part. Secondly, God's decree in our salvation. God's decree is for the purpose of our salvation. Ephesians 1, 3, passage we read already, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God's decree chooses those who will be his and those who will be saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's decree is for the purpose of salvation. Romans 8, 29 for those whom he foreknew, he also be predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's decree is for the purpose of our salvation. And God's decree also provides the means of accomplishing this salvation, and that is namely through Jesus Christ. When the Virgin Mary was visited by the angel, when she was conceived through the Holy Spirit, what did he say to her when he declared who the one was that was born in her womb? He said that you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus then says later in John chapter 6, that all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and those who come to me I will never cast out. God's decree is for the purpose of our salvation. God has decreed that we would be saved from our sins, for the judgment and wrath of God, and that he orchestrates different things in our lives, our decisions, the decisions of our parents, and everything that happens in our lives, so that we might then come to be saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the decree of God on display, and Jesus is the means by which God fulfills his plan for our redemption. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 tells us, For God has not destined us for wrath, but God has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our sins. What this then means 
is that God did not look forward in time to see who was going to believe and then chose them, but instead God chose before him, before the foundations of the world, who would become sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not because of anything that you have done or were able to do or you were going to do, but only because of the great love of God and the great mercy and grace of God. You have been loved and chosen to be a recipient of his divine favor, to be the object of his spiritual blessings, to be the apple of his eye, to be his beloved children. In God's decree, you were chosen. By God's decree, Christ saved you. Through God's decree, you are beloved by God. And how do you know? How do you know if you are this object of divine love and favor? You know this if you have repented of your sins and have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only way that you can be assured that you are one of those who are His. If you're continually offering up your life as a living sacrifice, as a way of expressing your gratitude unto the Lord, if your desire to continue to love the Lord with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and to give your life to glorify the Lord, that you can be assured that you are certainly one of His. But if you have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, how do you know? How do you know that you might or might not be chosen? And I don't know. And that is why we continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ unto all those who are His come to believe in Jesus and repent of their sins and turn their lives to Jesus Christ. That's why we as a church must continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts 13, 48, it tells us, and when the Gentiles heard this, that is the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The decree of God assures us that there are many upon many God has chosen, that God has decreed that they would be saved with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they will not be saved apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must continue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're here, if you have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are not here by accident. There's no such thing as chance when it comes to God. God does not leave anything to chance. Perhaps you're here by invitation of a friend or a loved one, whatever it might be, whatever it might be the, key, the case. You're here because God wants you to be here. Because today might be the day of your salvation. Because today might be the day when you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to turn to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to receive salvation from your sins and the judgment and the wrath of God, to receive eternal life and be adopted as a son and daughter of God. And I pray and hope that today might be the day where it would be made clear that you are one of his. Not only the scripture teaches us that God decrees and secures our salvation, and that our salvation is secured only in Christ, but scripture also points to the absolute necessity of God's decree. Now why is this so necessary? It's necessary, for one, because the Scripture tells us that apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins. 
Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Apart from Christ, there's this spiritual deadness. You're dead to the things of God. You're dead to the love of God. You're dead to the kingdom of Christ. You love the world. You love yourself. Your heart is bent inward like an iron bar that is just bent upon itself. And apart from the Spirit of God working, one cannot be saved. Reading the Scriptures, even in Ephesians, it says that by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God. To believe in the gospel is a gift. And we pray that for those who have yet to believe, they might receive that gift, and that you yourselves would pray for the gift to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's decree is necessary because of God's glory. God's glory makes this decree absolutely necessary. It is the only way in which God can guarantee that He will receive the maximum amount of glory that He is worthy of, because otherwise, left to chance or left only to individual human decisions, God cannot receive the glory that he is worthy of. Not when man is cemented to his own ways. So God's decree is necessary because it protects God's glory. And thirdly, it is necessary because it protects God's grace. If our coming to faith in Jesus Christ as left to our decision and our decision alone, then that would be a work and that would rob God of His glory and devalue His grace. We are saved not by choice. We're not saved by choice and grace, but we're saved by grace alone. So God's sovereign decree protects His grace. That We are saved by the mercy of God. We're saved by the love of God. We're saved because He is a good God. God's decree is His planning and purposing all things without exception for His own glory and for the good of His people. And I want to tell you that this Reality is such a sweet and delightful reality. Third and lastly, God's decree is the most delightful reality. Back to the question I asked you before. Did Paul and Silas intend to go to prison? Did they enter the city and say to themselves, we're going to get ourselves imprisoned and we're just going to see what happens? No, it was not their intention at all to be imprisoned. But here in this event, when we see what happens afterwards, we see God's decree on display. Because what happens? The jailer asked, what can I do? What must I do to be saved? And then he hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ and his entire household. And there we see God's decree on display because it led to the glory of God because this man and his family believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that gives glory to God. And it also led to the good of this man and his family because they were saved from their sins. So God displays his decree is for the purpose of the glory of God and the good of man. 
The jailer is saved. God is glorified. Or even consider the story of, of Nineveh or, or, or of Jonah. Right, we spent, I don't know how long ago, we spent months going through the book of Jonah. In those four chapters, you see so vividly the sovereignty, the providence, the decree of God. We see this renegade prophet who's commanded to go over here and preach a message of judgment to the Ninevites, and he goes in the opposite direction. He goes out to sea, and God hurls a great storm into the sea that rocks the ship. They're all terrified for their lives, which ends up with Jonah being hurled into the oceans, swallowed up by a great fish, and then brought all the way to Nineveh to preach a message of judgment. And what's the result? The people, the citizens, believe the word of this prophet, and they're spared from the judgment of God. How do we know that God intended for, you know, for Jonah to be in Nineveh? Because that's exactly where he ended up. And we see the decree of God on display in accomplishing his purposes, resulting in his glory through an entire nation coming to salvation. And it is no accident that just a few weeks ago I had planned on preaching today something entirely different and I had changed it for different reasons to then preach this particular doctrine that has been a sweet an encouragement to me in this past week. I could not have planned that. Only the Lord could have planned something like that. This is a most sweet and precious reality it accomplishes our salvation, it's intended for our good, and it secures our salvation. It helps us to rest in the hands of Christ. And this resting is not a doing of nothing. But John Owen writes, Our communion then with God consists in His communication of Himself to us with our returnal unto Him of that which He requires and accepts flowing from the union which in Jesus Christ we have with him. In communion, God gives himself to his people and they gave, give to him what he requires and accepts, their love, trust, obedience, and faithfulness. The heart that rests in Christ is the heart that believes and trusts in the goodness of God. Even when there's trials and suffering and affliction, even when flying through the fierce turbulence of affliction. It is a heart that continues to remain faithful and vigilant and trusting and obeying the one who has secured redemption and salvation on their behalf. So this is a precious teaching, a precious subject, a precious reality for us to give ourselves to, seek it, lean upon it. Like you might do with a wall when you have tumbled or tripped over something to try to catch your fall. Catch your fall upon the decree of God. Reach for it as a helping hand when you have fallen. Dress yourself with it for warmth when the bitterness of affliction causes you to shudder. Wield it as a sword when doubts plague your mind the devil is about with his schemes. This reality of God's decree has everything to do with our lives. 
And it certainly has everything to do with your suffering. How you endure suffering in your life will be depending upon how much you believe that God ordains all things for His own glory and for the good of His people. It includes suffering. And certainly we suffer in various different degrees depending on the moment, depending on the season. In some sense, suffering could be subjective. For one person's experience of suffering, a particular form of suffering can be experienced differently by another person. One thing we see so vividly in the scriptures, and which we also know from experience, because to be human in a way is also to suffer. But what we know and understand when we see in the scriptures and from our own lives that suffering is real, that suffering is dark, that suffering is oppressive. But suffering is not unconquerable. But it is something that is included in God's decree. And therefore it is under his control, it is under his sovereignty, it is under his providence, and he purposes it for his glory and for the good of those who love him. It is for the sake of comfort that God wrote the words, Romans 8.28, where he writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so when we go through these seasons of affliction, when we go through these sufferings, when we go through these trials, through these things that are unexplainable, we seek answers. This thread of suffering is not something that God does not know what to do with. He doesn't say to himself, what do I do with this? I didn't expect this. This wasn't something I foresaw. This has nothing to do with the canvas that I'm trying to lay out. Instead, he takes this thread and somehow he works it into the canvas in such a way that it still leads to this beautiful canvas that he's trying to put together to where that this thread of suffering would be incomplete, that this thread of suffering actually helps to complete the finished canvas. I would say this is the decree and providence of God that the children this morning did this, did this thing this morning where they're weaving. And, I, and if you know me, I'm not a person who typically has like these visible, tangible illustrations during his sermons. But I couldn't, I couldn't help but point this out. Because it's exactly what I'm talking about. Where each of these things, pretending this, that they're threads, these are our choices. These are our moments, our afflictions. This is the unexplainable. And God doesn't just throw them away. Instead, God takes each and every one of them. And he weaves them together to make this picture-perfect canvas that we don't have a picture of, that we don't see, that we can't comprehend. But we know that God is working it for his glory and for his good. Something that I have or a particular passage I have found incredibly, incredibly encouraging this past week is in Ephesians, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's something there that's, that is a comfort those of us who suffer. Sometimes 
We suffer loss. And it pains us. Perhaps you've lost a loved one. Perhaps you've lost a dear friend. There are things that, for whatever reason, God withholds from us. There are wonderful blessings, good blessings, good gifts that for some reason God withholds from us and we pray for them and we desire to have them. And for some reason God withholds them. But this passage is so encouraging. I hope that you find it encouraging as well because this passage essentially tells us that whatever blessings and gifts that have been withheld for you under the divine decree and providence of God here in this life will be more than made up for in the heavenly places. It says that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That we have something to look forward to. And that God God does this. That he can take all the things in our lives and somehow weave them together for his own purposes, for his own glory. And that what we see in the scriptures concerning God's decree is that it is here, it is taught to us, it is displayed to us so that we may rest assured in the God who loves us. He loves us and he's taking your experiences, your trials, your choices in this life He's purposing them for your good and for his glory. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and breadth and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Help us, O Lord, we pray. Lord, help us to see the reality of your decree as a pillow for us to rest our heads on. Help us to know, to remember, to trust that you are good and that you love us and you deeply care for your covenant people. Lord, help us, even in seasons of turbulence, help us, help us to rest in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, as a response to today's message, let us stand, let us worship our Lord. One more time together this morning. Amen.
grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.
Father. And I pray that we may fix our eyes on you, on your decree. And we may ask ourselves, Lord, where we stand before the throne of God. And at the same time, may we rest, Lord, and find comfort in our union with you, Father, in our salvation that has been graciously given to us. Father, I ask that we may understand and find comfort in the the midst of suffering. As we look and gaze at your sovereign decree and providence over our lives. You are worthy of our praise every single day. And we worship you for that, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Church, uh, God bless you. Say a quick blessing over our meal, and then we'll be dismissing and proceed downstairs uh, for lunch. Uh, Father, thank you for graciously providing this time together and providing for the food that many have generously uh, devoted their time and energies to, uh, to, to bringing this morning. We pray that you would bless our time together, bless this meal to our bodies, bless our conversations all to your eternal glory, and that it would strengthen and deepen our bonds with Christ and our bond and fellowship with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you downstairs.